Well, truly, it has been a, a blessing to be here. I want to greet each of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to our time of exercising our faith in the Word. Um, truly, truly, I, it has been a joy. So if you would turn in your scriptures... Where else but John? Let's go to John chapter 5. I must say that this passage um, here that we're prepared to embark on has been a has been an intimidating passage um, not necessarily because of the difficulty of its to understand its content or its message but rather just by the nature of how profound it is that we should in some ways uh, be called on to uncover or exegete this passage and to reveal what is there is a challenge um, to, to consider, um, as I say, the depth of this passage. Um, if, you, if you remember, two, well, I think it was two weeks ago, we spoke on the first part of John chapter 5 on the healing of this man by the pool of Bethesda, and how there were a few things that uh, that marked that passage as unique, and uh, especially uh, verses three and four, where it speaks of the moving of the water. But what really stands out, I think, to to us here in this passage of John five is that it marks a change in the in the um, religious leaders and the religious people of that day. There, it marks a change in how they uh, considered Christ, or at least in public. This this healing of this man instigates a a um, a confrontation with the religious people of the day, in where Christ in his mercy, his divine mercy, reaches out to a, an infirm person who has been laying sick for 38 years, I believe it says, and to have such a wonderful miracle occur in such a, an unmerited fashion from Christ, that merciful a compassionate outreach to this man that it would instigate such an, a response from the people of religion of that day. It should in some ways outrageous that there would be such a response, that there would such, be such a, a low view of mercy that... This would instigate such hatred for Jesus Christ. But it has. And because it rocked the boat of their, their Sabbath traditions, uh, 
it has it went across the grain of what they uh, of what they were expecting, and so that was verses one through verse sixteen, and I had titled it "Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment." Today, this marks the defense of what Christ is speaking to these who accuse him of Sabbath-breaking, of law-breaking. Here is, this constitutes his response to them. Uh, actually, this response goes all the way to the end of chapter 5, but I will we'll break in, or we'll, we'll stop, I believe, in, uh, in verse 30. So today for our text, let's read John 5. 16 through 30. John 5:16 through verse 30. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, verily, verily I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, we have it again, verily, verily I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. 
So indeed, this passage has a lot to say. It goes on to the end of the, end of the uh, chapter where he calls on witnesses to uh, support his claims. So what we have here in this passage is primarily Jesus claiming equality with his heavenly Father. He's claiming that he is something more than they see. That he is much more than meets the eye. And then later in this chapter, he brings these witnesses to bear um, to support these claims. But this morning, we primarily want to look at these claims, at these statements of equality. If, if you would, this, this portion of scripture, if, if you would have, if you would not know Christ, and you would want to know who this man of Galilee is, and you would want to know his, his qualifications, so to speak, this passage is Jesus Christ making a personal statement of his identity and of his who he is. And from that perspective, I would just, my prayer is and has been that this passage would become, would be, would increase our faith, that it would strengthen our confidence in this Christ. Think about this. Here at the beginning, I just want to say, if you have put your trust in this man, this son of man, you have put your trust in the proper place indeed. Think about it. If, if you wanted to know with, the, with confidence that he was more than just a man, this passage teaches us that. That it is meant for us to just, you know, put all our eggs in one basket. And so this morning, let's look at some of these claims. It is, as I mentioned here at, earlier, this fact that Jesus had mercy on this man and how that this was one of the most wonderful things that had ever happened to this man, the Jews show by their reaction that they value mercy but little. That they value mercy but little, which in turn reveals to us that their self-righteousness by their self-righteousness, which it, it has very, they, well, self-righteousness has little use for mercy. Think about it. If, if, if we are made righteous by our own doings, and we, or we think that we are, then what good is it? What good is mercy if you, by the strength of your own arm, can achieve your righteousness? What good is mercy? It makes you sneer at mercy, brothers and sisters. If, if we think that we can do this, then we sneer at mercy. And that's what we see the Jewish people doing here. They have so little regard for mercy because they believe they are righteous by their own actions. And so we know that this is an utter fallacy. So let's look here in this text. So 
This passage from verse 17 through 47 is Jesus giving a personal statement of who he is. And it is his defense given to the Jews for his actions, maybe even a formal response. I'm not sure. There was some thought that this could have been a formal response given to the Sanhedrin. We don't know that. We don't read that. But it is a response to the Jewish leaders, the Jewish rulers who would have had an argument against him for what he had done in uh, the first part of the chapter. So in verse 16, Jesus had already stirred up the Jews. (laughs) You see that he had already stirred the pot. I mean, they already persecuted him and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But what does Jesus do? He becomes even more provocative. He becomes even more emphatic. And he just pours fuel on the fire, so to speak. So Jesus is essentially saying here in verse 17, my father works on the Sabbath. Okay? That's, that's basically what he's saying. My father works on the Sabbath, and that is what governs my actions. He has been working until now, and so I work also. Now, in, in, creation, in the creation week, the, it says clearly in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord ceased from his labors of creating all the things he had made. He ceased from his creative work. But if you read Psalm 104, you, you see very clearly that the, um, and, and, and Job, you know, when God makes his, this, makes his argument with Job, where were you when I did this? You know, who, f- I'm thinking it's there in Job 38 where he says, who feeds the rock badgers, you know? Or who does all these things that are going on around the clock, This is the labor of providence where he brings the rain upon the field so that you and I can raise a crop, so that we can feed our families. It's it's God's work of providence. And and even the Jewish rabbis clearly accepted this, this thought that God never ceases to labor. He doesn't cease to labor even though he ceased from his creative labors, he does not cease from his providential ministry to his creation. His providential work has known no Sabbath. And so when Jesus said this, that my father has been working until now, and I have been working. The Jews immediately understood that Jesus was asserting equality with God. By saying, my father works unceasingly, and so I am working also, you know, Jesus is claiming to be be partaking of his father's essential nature. That if, if Christ is, if God, my father, is working unceasingly, then and I am working, he is, in, he is, he is implying there that he, um, he, is, he belongs or he has the same characteristics that 
his father does. But when, and the Jews recognized this for what it was. And this is, I think, the proper understanding of this verse because if the Jews, in recognizing verse 17 as a statement of equality with God, that Jesus was claiming equality with God, and, and they, they recognized that in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. If, if, that, if they would have come to the wrong conclusion, I think Christ would have corrected them. But no, what happens instead is that Christ just emphatically verifies that they have come to the right conclusion. He just, he just, he just says, verily, verily, truly, I say to you, this is the absolute truth, people, is what he's saying. In verse 19, he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. Well, let's, let's talk about that phrase or that statement in verse 19. We also find it in verse 30. And I think we need to deal with this statement Jesus makes here in verse 19 where he says, um, the son can do nothing of himself. Notice what he says in verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. I used, to, I used to read that, and actually, I believe it's, it, it is here. I read a note that says that, that this is actually where false teachers get the idea that Jesus is not God, uh, where he says, I can do nothing of myself, or I can of myself do nothing. I, I think we need to deal with this statement. Now, in considering this, these statements are not confessions of weakness or inability. They do not imply that Jesus Christ is not omnipotent. Rather, in the very context of these verses, Jesus states his equal standing with the Father. He, he, he makes a a clear statement as we move past this verse. For instance, as the Father, in verse 20, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. You see, the Father has the power and the sovereign ability to give life. Well, the Son has the same quality there. He claims this same quality, even so, just like the Father. The Son gives life, and He doesn't just give life by the direction of the Father. He gives life according to His own will, you see. So in verse 19 and 30, where the Son, where He says, the Son can do nothing of Himself, they teach that there is complete unity and cohesion between Father and Son. You know, it's rather a statement of the truth of who Christ is, not a statement of His inability. It is a statement, rather, of, of, of who He actually is in relation to His Father, rather than 
a statement of inability. And, and think about it. In Hebrews 6.18, you have this teaching that there's an impossibility with God. In Hebrews 6.18, where it says that it is impossible for God to lie. You have that, that teaching. This is similar in that Jesus can do nothing that represents only himself. Now think with me. What he, what he is saying is that when I do something, it represents my Father in heaven. I, I can't just do something that represents me. I can never do something, he says, that is only about me. Christ is saying that whenever I do something, it represents my Father in heaven. Another way of saying it here is how Christ said it himself in verse 19b, where he says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. You see. For whatever he does, the Son also does. And not only does he do them, but he does them in the same way, in like manner as the Father does them. And so he claims equality with the Father based on his work, based on his ministry. He claims this equality that whatever you see me doing, has I have seen it done, so to speak. Everything I do, I have seen done by my Father. I cannot just speak for myself. And if you, if you remember in John 1.18, he says this clearly. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Or He has exegeted Him. He has revealed Him. He has brought revelation about Him. And you, you also have it in John 8.38 where He says... In John 8.38, he says this way, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. And so he states that what he does is always done in conjunction and in, in, uh, in like manner as his heavenly Father. He does the same things and in the same way. So Jesus here is in the middle of his work as mediator. Think of it. We have Jesus Christ as the Son of Man here. He's in the middle of his labors of mediating between God and man. And when the Jewish people see this man, though he is much more than that, that is what meets the eye, a man. And so Christ is giving this, this defense that he is much more than man. And he, so it is God the Father in heaven and the Son of Man on earth. And as, as one commentator said about this verse 19, the Father's doing is his willing. The Father's doing is, is him willing it. But the Son, is the, is, it is only the Son who acts in time. And so the Son, the Son is, is, is revealing the Heavenly Father to us. 
And, and essentially, this is that open heaven that Jesus says to Nathaniel in John 1, in verse 51, where he says, in John 1, 51, and he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I think it was probably a play on words in what, in, with, uh, Jacob's, with Jacob's um, dream at, at Bethel, where the angels of God were coming down in Jacob's dream. The angels of God were coming down, up, up and down on this ladder, and they were bringing revelation to Jacob. Well, now Jesus is saying, you will see heaven open and the angels of God will not be ascending and descending on a ladder, but the revelation will now come through the Son of Man. There will be an open heaven and it's going to be revealed what is in heaven by this Son of Man. We'll see revelation coming down upon earth in the the person of this Jesus of Nazareth. This is that heaven open that uh, he was referring to. And indeed, heaven truly did meet with man in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God, we have, we have this declaration of Christ just right in the face of Jewish opposition, telling them what they don't want to hear. So there's a reason, as we move through this text, as we look at verse 20, there's a reason given for this work. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything that He does. So as love doesn't conceal, but rather uncovers, love, this relationship of love between Father and Son reveals the Father's will to the Son and uncovers His plan, His agenda, and, and the Son then takes this revelation and shows it to us. You know, he, he shows it to us because He is in a body like us. He is in that human form of Jesus Christ. And for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater work, works than these that you may marvel. You know, a side note here to, to fathers. I've often, I've often looked at this, this verse and thought, you know, now here is a, here's a divine lesson for fathers and sons or fathers and daughters that the fathers among us, you know how our sons, you know how it takes time to maybe, and I've often, I have been guilty of this where, what are you doing, Dad? What are you doing, Daddy? And, well, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm too busy to sit down and explain this is what I'm doing. There's nothing like that here between father and son. Here, the father loves the son and shows him everything that he would do. And then the son turns around and does the same thing on earth in a different sphere, in a different realm, you see. And so a lesson for us is that your son, when he comes to you, if you love him, you will show him all things that you're doing. And you will, you will teach him. You will, you will point out. You will reveal truth to him. And then he, in turn, will repeat it in his realm, uh, of his sphere 
of influence. And so we have the Father loving the Son and showing him all these things. And what I think is happening here, this work of showing is present tense. The Father loves the Son and shows him. You know, in, in, uh, in John 3.11, actually in John 3.13, the language there is this as if the Son of Man was in heaven. Um, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. You know, it's almost speaking like that, that, that Christ in his, in his divine nature is in heaven, you know, even while he was on earth. And so however that may be is that it, is, it was a present showing for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works. Now, what work did we just see? What work did we just see? It was the work of mercy toward this man who was, you know, an invalid for 38 years. That was the work that we just seen. But Christ is saying that he will show him, the Father will show him greater works than that so that we might marvel. What are those greater works? Well, as this healing miracle was shown to Christ and the the greater work will be the resurrection from the dead as we move into the passage. There will be a resurrection from the dead. And indeed, if you think about it, nature might have healed certain diseases. It did not heal this, this man in, at the pool of Bethesda. But nature does sometimes, by certain means, heal someone. But nature, brothers and sisters, has never brought back from the dead. Never has nature done that. It is a greater work, obviously, than healing a, a, a sick man for, that has been laying for 38 years. It's a, it, that's a great work. But a greater one is if he would have been dead and Christ would have given him life because he is life. As John 1 says in verse 4, it says there, in him was life. Notice what he says as we go on in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead, and and this is that greater work that he is showing the Lord Jesus. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You know, that's over our heads. That's just over our heads. Here was a a man that the Jewish people were interrogating, and he says, I have the power to give life to whomever I will. And we'll see, as we go down into the, the latter part of this passage, we'll see quite a bit more about this resurrection power. But in the next three verses here, in verses 21, 22, and 23, we have this in staccato fashion. We have Jesus, 
the Son, claiming equality in three different areas with the Father. First, we have Jesus there in verse 21, as I already mentioned, the power to raise the dead. And, and even in a sense, the sovereignty to do it to whom, whom he would. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. He is equal in judgment. The, the Son of God is equal to his Father in judgment. This word judgment is, if you have your old King James Bible, I think verse 24 says, and shall not come into condemnation. It's the same word. In verse 29, where it says, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation, the same word. It's the same Greek word. It's, the, it's, it's basically the word of decision or maybe a tribunal where somebody is tried and they're, they're brought to a panel. In this case, they're brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives a decision. For the, it's the idea of administration. For the Father judges no one, but has committed his government be administrated through the Son. That, that would be a paraphrase for verse 22. That the Father has determined that his government, his kingdom, will be, a, will be and as it says in verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment. You see, the Father, in verse 22, has determined that his government will be administered through the Son. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now listen. Verse 23. Now this is, this is kind of the, this is, this is kind of that, that overarching. The, the, this, 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 verse 23 is given as a reason for this. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but in, in verse 21, you know, the Son in like manner as the Father, remember in verse 19, as the Father gives life to whom he will, the Son in like manner. Jesus said to Martha, remember in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The Son has life in himself. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. You know what this means, brothers and sisters, that our Savior, our Savior is self-existent. He is, there is, he has no dependency on anything or anyone. And in 1 John, we have that, that grand statement that uh, where, Christ, where John, the same author, makes this statement in John 5, 1 John 5, 11, where he says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now listen, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Listen, these things are written. They are written for the benefit of our faith. They are written for the confidence that we might have in Christ. They are written to build us up in this most holy faith. Praise God, we have, we have, we have Him condescending to, to, to write these things to us. We, we don't have the opportunity to, to walk with Jesus of Galilee along the shores and see His miracles. We were not there at the Pool of Bethesda. But Christ... Uh, the Father has made sure that these things are recorded for us and these claims are recorded for us and we know them to be true. And so we have, we have these things re- recorded that we might have confidence in our faith. You know, it is the Son's prerogative to give life to whom He wills. But God is, in verse 22, committed all judgment to the Son. And as I pointed out, this is, a, this is a, an idea of a tribunal or a decision or an administration. And it is given for this reason, that all should honor the Son as we honor the Father. Now let's pause here and just think about that a little bit. God has determined that to honor Him, we must honor the Son. You know, there, there is not a possibility to honor the Father while dishonoring the Son. And while the Jews were saying, Christ, you are blaspheming, making yourself as one with, with God, what they were actually doing is they were the ones who were blaspheming. They were the ones who were dishonoring the Son. And this particular passage, isn't it ironic that, that one who, who was self-righteous was disregarding the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in disregarding that ministry of Jesus Christ, he was dishonoring the Father. Though they were claiming to, 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 to be all about the Father's honor. But how is it that they missed the mark in such a fashion? But God has determined that if you or I disregard the Son, in the name of religion, it is, it is a false religion. It is a dead religion. I would like to just make some applications right here at this point as we think about this. Verse 23. What are some of the implications and applications of this truth? I mean, I I think this verse greatly helps our discernment. For instance, if, if someone claims to believe in God but discredits the biblical Christ... We need to discount his faith as completely. We, we, need, to, we need to discount it out of hand and, and say it's, it's a fallacy. 
whatever, whatever that looks like, in whatever denomination or whatever, however it arrives at us, if it denies the biblical Christ, then it dishonors the Father. And so, verse 23 discredits any religion that in practice denies the gospel of Christ. It discredits any religion, any religion, that denies in practice the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, they may not deny him in word, but maybe they, maybe they, they deny him in orthopraxy. I have another passage that really speaks to this. I just want to turn to it in John, in Second John. It's a beautiful passage. It just fits perfectly on this doctrine of Christ. Second John beginning in verse 7. Please turn, I want to show you this passage. This is a passage of Scripture that I think many of us kind of, it's a flyover passage in a sense. We, we, we tend to, to, uh, to not see this one as, as readily. Second John, the epistle of Second John in verse 7. Reading through 7, from 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Notice the clarity with which John speaks here. He just simply says, this is a deceiver <laughs> and an antichrist. You know, John's sermon was, was on a knife edge. He, 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 could, he just simply said, those are antichrists. Christ. They are deceivers. Look to yourselves, he says in verse 8, that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Brothers and sisters, you literally can lose your reward based on how you look at the, how you, how you apply this truth. Now that is a real sobering fact. That, that, that the way we relate to those who Disregard Jesus Christ. That we can actually lose a reward through it. Look to yourselves. Be careful about this. That we don't lose those things we worked for. By the way, that's not your salvation. That is your reward. but rather that we may receive a full reward. Verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. This is about as clear as you can get. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, and now here's the admonition, here's the application for this truth. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Or in other words, wish him well or bless him in his endeavors. Don't, don't bless him in his wickedness. He who greets him shares in his evil deeds. 
Now that is, that, that is a very serious word to us. That if someone does not embrace the biblical Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ, that we do not become entangled in any manner with such a person, lest we lose our reward. And we are admonished to deal with him in a certain fashion. Do not receive him. Do not bless him. Do not greet him. Why so? Because John 5.23 said that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And I believe it is right to say he cannot honor the Son, honor the Father who sent him. Now, as we consider the application for verse 23... On the positive side, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15 says that we are the fragrance of Christ to God. We are to God the fragrance of Christ. Just a beautiful, a beautiful thought there that is as, as we live our lives for Christ, as we honor Christ in our lives, it's an aroma that comes up to our Heavenly Father and He is pleased with it. He is pleased with it. You know, this morning, it just thrilled my soul as I was partaking of the Lord's Supper to know that I was pleasing the Father. I was pleasing the Father. Notice how pleasing must be the observance of the Lord's Supper. How pleasing that must be to God. When His people do this in remembrance of His Son, when they do it in remembrance of Christ, and Jesus said to do this as a reminder of me, He says, In 1 Corinthians 11, as oft as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death. Listen. I'm convinced that the Lord's Supper received in a biblical fashion by Believer's Chapel is a glory, is a pleasure to God it is an honor to the father because we honor the son indeed verse 23 drives home John 14 6 I am the way the truth and the life and no one not anyone no one comes to the father except through me truly God has determined that his government will be administrated through Christ. He judges no one, but he has given all this over to the Son. So now, as we continue, as we look at here, as we wrap this up and bring it together, you know, six times, 
from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, we have the words, the Father sent me, six times. From verse 23 to verse 47. And one time, or six times we have the Father sent me or its equivalent. I mean, we might say, he who sent me. But then one time in verse, for instance, in verse um, 43, I have come in my Father's name. You know, Christ, brothers and sisters, was giving his defense to a people who had a zeal for God. He was giving this defense to a people who were zealous for God. He went to great lengths here in our text to these people. That this God, whom you fear to a certain degree at least, actually sent me to you. This is, the, this is a great point here that, that all these arguments of equality are meant to, are meant to, um, are, are demonstrated in his incarnation. They're demonstrated in his, in his human, in his humanness. I think it's even, there's even a, there's even something here that, uh, well, well, let me, I'll, I'll get there. But so as he went to great lengths, for instance, to show these people who had a zeal for God, and we have this passage in Romans 5 that I, I have to relate to. I, I, actually, Romans 5 gives me this liberty to say that Christ was speaking to a, to a people. It's not Romans 5, it's Romans 10, verse 1 through 5. Where... Paul is telling the Jews, my brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You see, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, remember, isn't that exactly what we said was the problem? They, did, they had so little use for mercy because they had their own righteousness, you see. No use for the mercy of God because they didn't need it. And they, they snooted at anybody who needed it. So that's what Paul is saying here, that they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. You know, the old covenant was do and live. That was the old covenant. It employed the flesh. It, 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 it demanded of us. You need to do it this way and you'll live. The problem was we couldn't do it. Now notice in verse 24 it says, He who hears my word and believes, that's the new covenant. Hearing, believing, and having life. Whereas the old covenant was do and live, here it is hear and believe and live. So Jesus Christ was sent to us by God the Father, as we go back to John 5, 
to mediate between us. His equality with God is necessary for his work of reconciliation. Man cannot approach a holy God without a God-man between us. And so, these statements of equality show us that while he had a human body, yes, he was in, in the form of man, but he was much more than that. And he was demonstrating the attributes of God to humanity. Notice in verse 27, Christ was given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now this title, Son of Man, refers to his incarnation or to his humiliation and humanity. It is as the Son of Man that the attributes of a holy God are, they, that's how they came to humanity in the person of the Son of Man. MacArthur notes that Jesus uses this term for himself more than any other term. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. And it refers to his, his dissension, his humiliation, his humanity. And he, he's very willing to embrace that term. I am the Son of Man. But the attributes of a holy God are demonstrated and displayed in this Son of Man. Eighty-three times in the Gospel, he refers, he's referred to him as the Son of Man. He, re, he uses the title exclusively himself. So Christ was given this work of granting life and executing judgment as the Son of Man. Now isn't that a wonderful thing, that we have a judge over us that is like unto us. There were a few times this morning, I think, that this was referenced as the high priest who can sympathize with us. But notice, here in this passage, he is given the, the authority to execute judgment over humanity. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting that God is saying, look, you humanity can't deal with me. I will install a judge over them who is like unto them, though without sin. And they will have a judge who is compassionate over them. And he will execute judgment for them. Praise God, it's, 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 a, it's a wonder that, that the Son of God, as the Son of Man, is given the authority over us. And He has, in His humanity, in His humiliation, He displays these attributes of divine, of, of divinity, and, but yet... He judges us as the Son of Man. 
He executes this judgment over us. And how does he do it? So let's quickly, as we finish here, Verses 24 and 25 speak of a spiritual resurrection. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him. Notice the connection he makes. Okay, we have the Son of Man stating a, stating a word. He believes in, who hears my word and believes that he sent me. I think you could read it that way. Or believes in Him who sent me. And there's, there's, that, there's that connection between His Heavenly Father. You know, I am not just, I, I am, it's not just my word that, but, but it, is in, it, is, it is inseparably tied to my Heavenly Father. You see. Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He has, present tense, everlasting life. And shall not come into this place of judgment or into this, this, this administration of justice. It has already been served, you see. But has passed from death into life. Already past tense. Passed into life. You know, here is that power that Christ has, our Savior has, to bring us into spiritual life, to call us forth as he did Lazarus. Notice verse 25. Most assuredly, we have that again, that emphasis on this is indeed the truth. I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. Okay, it was present then already. Even though it was coming, it was already present. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That is that spiritual resurrection, brothers and sisters. This is speaking about those who are dead spiritually will hear the voice. In verse 24, it's, if you hear my word, in verse, verse 25, it's if you hear the voice of the Son of God. And there he, he titles himself the Son of God. And those who hear, they will live. It's not they should live. It's they will live. They will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute Judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Christ has the power to call us forth from the grave of our carnal nature. And so verse 25 contrasts the hour is coming and now is with verse 28, where the hour is coming when all who hear, all who are in the grave will hear His voice. Now that again, is a reference to resurrection. But that's the physical resurrection of all those who are, in the, who are in the grave. You know, right now we have the opportunity to hear His voice. And if we hear, we will live. And that is that spiritual resurrection that comes from the power of Christ. But there is a time coming when the judge will return. And then... 
the dead will hear his voice and come forth out of the grave. And they, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. You know, both of these accounts of resurrection are by the power of Christ. They're by the power of this Son of Man. Even now, the gospel is ringing out. Come to Christ. Come to this Son of Man who will receive you if you but would. Because you will respond. For sure. The hour is coming in the future when all those who are in the grave will hear His voice and they should come forth. No, they will come forth. And when they come forth, those who come forth, those who have done good, which is simply not because they, they, won't, they won't come to this resurrection of life because necessarily because they have done good, but it's a mark of their, they have done good because they were born again. They will come forth to this resurrection of life, but those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And what, the, what would have been a resurrection unto salvation in verse 25 becomes a resurrection in verse 28 to condemnation, to damnation. And truly, it's the same voice calling. Isn't that amazing? He who would have been your salvation is now your judge. And truly, there's no remedy left. There's no remedy now for those who come forth to the resurrection of condemnation. Who of us hasn't rejoiced in verse 24? Who of us hasn't? It's been a, it's a, been a blessing to my life to know that I won't be arising to a resurrection of condemnation, but a resurrection to life. Notice again, he finishes in verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And I I believe again what he is saying, that there's no disconnect between me and my Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Why is my judgment impartial? Why is it right? It's because I am not administrating my own will, he says. I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. Well, I must close. I want to just offer this word to us today. If you know him, what a great grounds of confidence this passage gives us. You have the King of glory who will call you forth. If, you should, if he should tarry and we should go to our grave, he will call us forth unto the resurrection of life. We have great grounds to trust him completely. But if you do not know him, there's this, 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 this becomes 
this passage becomes a terror. Because it absolutely assures us that we will hear his voice. We will hear his voice. And we will come forth because he is God. Because he has the power and the equality with God. He has the power of, of, of God. He is God. And he is life. Well, thank you for your kind attention.